Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. And this week, we take a look at just one more way in which artificial intelligence is ingraining itself in our daily lives. With so much hype around AI, it's hard to know what to think of it. In one moment, AI applications can appear benevolent, even helpful. Like when Netflix offers up viewing suggestions, or Amazon recommends an item you might like. It can also be intrusive. Facial recognition, for instance, can and has been used to track and screen innocent people simply going about their business. AI, you might say, wears many faces. One moment, it's Big Brother watching your every move. The next, it's R2-D2 trying to save your life. I'm dramatizing, but you get the point. Now, apparently, AI-enabled machines are learning to listen. So well, in fact, that advanced technology is able to decipher subtle tones, language variances, and emotional nuances virtually inaudible to the human ear. In so doing, it can determine the sentiment of the speaker. And that, says Walt Mayo, CEO of Expert.ai, can make a world of difference. Take the just-concluded U.S. presidential race, for instance. Walt and his colleagues put their technology to the test, and three weeks before the election calculated that Joe Biden would receive 50.2% of the popular vote compared to 47.3% for Trump. It struck me as a bit of a marketing ploy at the time, and a risky one at that. Why would a tech company stick its neck out with this kind of prediction when every other major poll prior to the election had Biden trouncing Trump by at least an 8% margin? The results are now official, with Biden winning the popular vote by 51% to 47.2%. Yet the real victor was AI. How did this relatively small tech company blow the doors off a phalanx of seasoned and highly certain professional pollsters? I asked Walt to join me in this episode to share his story and talk about the future of so-called sentiment analysis AI. Walt Mayo, thank you for joining us on Inside Asia. We are going to talk about artificial intelligence yet again. That's a pleasure to be here, Steve. Thank you. We, uh, we knew each other years back um, in, in Singapore when you lived there. Um, and, and prior to leaving and returning to the U.S., you've been a longtime tech player. Can you tell us a little bit about your past and some of the work you've done? Sure. So um, you and I met in the time-honored tradition of how expats meet in general, right? Which mm. is your kids make friends and then your spouses decide which of their p- mothers they want to hang out with. And then we're told, hey, go talk to that guy. So I was with Dell for um, a, just under 15 years. Um, I, I lived and worked in, in Montpellier. And that was my first time doing business in Italy. And then I went to Sydney, Australia. Then I went from there to Japan and then to Singapore. And that's where we crossed our paths. Exactly, exactly. And then we lost touch for several years. And then I came across an article uh, prior to the, uh, the November elections, um, where it appeared expert AI was taking a position on what they believed the spread would be between Biden and Trump. And I archived it. I, I put a, a note on it, set it aside and said, let's see what happens. And, and it was interesting at that point uh, because uh, no major polling organization showed uh, Biden leading by less than eight percentage points over the final month of the race. And yet your prediction uh, was looking at a split which was closer to 
50.2% for Biden to 47.3% for Trump. And um, it just was a curiosity. And how could this be? Tell us why you decided to um, run these predictions um, and a little bit about the, the methodology that you use to uh, derive the, this, this anticipated split. Well, the, the, you know, the immediate impetus, and to be very clear here, Expert on AI is not in, in the polling business and, and we're, we're in the business of applying artificial intelligence to natural language. And natural language is a language you and I use, right? As distinguished from say software code, which is not a natural language, right? Um, so the, the, the immediate impetus was we knew the election was coming up and we had run similar type of exercise prior to Brexit, right? So we, we did a similar analysis where we took social media and analyzed that social media and said, where are the sentiments aligning associated with how people view Brexit? And we actually called Brexit, right? At a time where nobody believed that that was likely to happen. Right? So we said, actually, it looks as if the UK is going to, to actually leave. It, it will pass, right? And so we decided to do the same thing for the election. Um, and and uh, what came back was a lot tighter, as you pointed out, than what the traditional polling methods were, were indicating, right? So there was a little bit of a gut check there, honestly, right? Because as I said, we're not, we're not in the business of polling, but um, we, we represented our capabilities fairly transparently and essentially said, look, it's a, it's a lot closer race based on what we're seeing in social media and in particular in Twitter than the polls are indicating. Break it down for us then. I mean, it, it precisely what does your technology do? How were you able to get at it? And maybe you can explain this idea of sentiment analysis um, in order to help people understand what you did differently. Sure. So the, um, you know, the mechanics of it were that we, we gathered and analyzed a half a million Twitter uh, feeds related to the election. So the first thing you have to do is say, um, give me the information where it's fairly clear that the, um, the person is talking about the election, right? So that's a classification exercise. Is this about the upcoming election? And, and that's a relatively straightforward exercise. And then the next level of analysis, which is the, the dominant level of analysis with most AI approaches is sentiment analysis. And that's kind of thumbs up, thumbs down. Is it positive or negative, right? And, and that's a very uh, generic read around the language that is used. I like, I don't like, right? What we bring is a much finer grained assessment of the language that breaks it down into about 84 different sentiments that capture a lot of intensity, right? So if you say, gee, I don't really like Joe Biden, that's different than saying like, I absolutely cannot stand him, right? There's an intensity there that we're able to capture that most AI approaches can't. So what you're referring to is nuance. So is it the way 
that language is deciphered based on the words that are used or the emotions that they convey? Uh, the one follows the other, right? So you have to understand how the, the, the meaning of the words, right? You have to understand how the words relate to each other to then derive the intensity of the emotion uh, that's associated with it, right? So that's really what distinguishes us from more basic customer sentiment analysis. Is it positive or is it negative? Got it, got it. So, so as you went through, how, how, what are the size of the data sets that you accessed and what were the different um, uh, social media platforms that you were surveying or, or, or analyzing? So we had about a half a million Twitter feeds, right? Which is relatively modest when you consider what it's generally needed for a, uh, a data set. That's one of the advantages of the technology that we have, right? And at some point, Steve, if you give me license, I'll go into a little bit more technical conversation around the different approaches to AI and language, right? But... Um, one of, one of the core advantages that we offer in our technology is that we're able to get deep understanding with much smaller data sets than is found in traditional AI, right? So traditional AI is typically machine learning, right? And with machine learning, they're requiring very, very large data sets to detect patterns associated with the information that you're providing. What, what we have is a hybrid, right? So it's a, um, an approach that includes symbolic, which means it's embedded explicit knowledge and machine learning. Mm -hmm. And symbolic is how we use language, right? So when you think about how, how is it humans come to use language, right? They learn language. And then over time, they learn the context in which language can take on different meaning. Right? So we've actually captured that. And then we combine that with some of the machine learning techniques. And as a result, we're able to come up with much smaller data sets. Now, in this case, we wanted to have a pretty robust sample for obvious reasons. But one of the interesting things is we didn't have to do a lot of adjusting in terms of um, the contribution to the data set, right? So we, we kind of took the feed as it was and then, you know, we weighted it accordingly. And then out of that, we came up with a rough indication, which I think a lot of folks felt, which was, gosh, we're hearing the polls or we're seeing the polls saying one thing, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels like this is a lot closer race, right? And I think you talked to any number of folks before uh, the election, they would have said something like that, right? I, I don't think there were too many particularly on the Democratic side, where, as you pointed out, the polls were saying that um, Joe Biden had a really sizable national lead. And then when you got into some of the state levels, right, he was showing leads in places like Wisconsin that were very large, right? But I think there was a, a lot of folks who were saying it feels a lot closer than that. That's essentially what we picked up. Yeah, and maybe it also is this idea of one, 2016, the pollsters got it wrong then, and everyone's, everyone's wondering, did they adjust appropriately? And also there was an element at least among, well, I'd say both sides of the camp camp's uh, fear. Um, and, and therefore that fed into uh, reservations or hesitations people might have to believe anything. Uh, and, and then of course you layer over that, the fact that you've had you know, so much deception 
uh, in the public domain, uh, you know, fake news to, you know, institutions that can't be relied upon. It, it in some ways must have been influencing people's, uh, the levels of, of, of confidence they had um, in any reading on any situation. So I, I think it was just a, a, a mire of different, uh, you know, confluence of different issues, which were creating some of the, some of the tension. But it, it, I want to I go back to what you said about, um, you know, the way that your uh, technology detects. I mean, in order to get there, did you actually have to build data sets through um, just a, a myriad or millions and millions of renditions of listening to, if you will, social media exchanges in order to parse or, you know, what this means versus what that means? Is that what it is? And then it, it, you, the algorithms capture that and are able to kind of look for it as it's actually going out and, and surveying or, or determining, you know, what somebody is actually um, looking to do versus what they say they're going to do? No, interestingly, right? So um, essentially what we said, so think about it this way, right? Um, the, the core assumption is that what we, what we saw on Twitter what was an accurate representation of what somebody wanted to say, okay? So, you know, we did, we did the normal kind of screening to make sure that we weren't paying attention to chatbots or, or um, other misinformation that was being generated. So we had a reasonably high degree of confidence. It was actually a person who was taking the time to put together a string of words um, that captured their sentiment to the election, right? And then we took those words on face value and we assigned to them some level of intensity, right? And then essentially we did some of the weighting, the, the mathematics around that and saying, based on what we're seeing, this is where we, we, we feel the numbers are coming out. Now, what it would be most analogous to would be, assume that you could have gone into a half a million diners in the week before the election and just listen to what people said. Right. And then kind of taking a, a a one to ten scale on how they felt about the, the candidates. Right. And then you gathered all that information and then you tabulated it. Right. Again, you eliminated some of the noise. And, the, and what came out of it was, you know, essentially our prediction the the, the challenge in traditional polling methods is that it's not a diner. Right? There's really big self-selection that's taking place. And this is somewhat of a new phenomenon that's been associated with this whole dynamic around misinformation and distrust and fake news and the fake media, et cetera, right? where there's a fair number of people who are beginning to wonder whether there is a, you know, a strain of political um, affiliation associated with the conservative movement, in particular, and Trump supporters even more pronounced, where they're simply not even responding to polls, mm -hmm. right? So we cut through that one. Yeah, so there's a structural issue just in terms of how you access, you know, a, a, a reasonable uh, sample set of people who could give you accurate insight in terms of what they will or won't do. There's a fair number of people who are saying that that's the single biggest driver of the inaccuracy associated with the polls. Mm, mm, got it. So, so, and, and I guess in some ways, what you're saying is, is AI or, or your technology is relatively agnostic. It's not, it, it's, it's reach is far enough and it's deciphering capabilities are, are um, robust enough to be able to cut through any of those kind of anomalies that you might discover through a traditional polling process. And 
Interestingly, some of the other AI approaches that did rely heavily on algorithms were pretty far off the mark, right? So again, our, our hybrid approach, right, which is words have meaning in context. They, they convey levels of intensity. That's embedded and explicit. And then combine that with the advantages that you get with machine learning and, you know, essentially, as the analogy I offered is you've got a half a million conversations that you just listen to across a reasonably representative group of people. So have we arrived at a, a point of departure uh, where AI is, is, in fact, um, you know, demonstrating its ability to be more capable and competent of determining what is really intended versus human instinct and human human or traditional approaches? Well, so I would, I would make the distinction between human instinct and traditional approaches, right? Um, the, you know, the, the old axiom is what's easy for people is hard for computers, right? So things like walking, for example, trying to get a, a robot to walk, right? Like go up a flight of stairs, right? You know, that, that's super hard. Um, what is, is that a German shepherd or is it a husky? Well, it's a husky, obviously. Well, you ask a computer and you put the, you know, classic example, object recognition, um, the, the question was identify huskies. And it worked really, really well until they put a poodle in some snow. And then it said, that's a husky. What it was saying basically was any dog that's in snow is a husky, right? It was a correlation, right? That's all they were doing. They were saying there's a correlation between if you're a dog and you're snow, then you're a husky, right? Um, so, you know, uh, machines are really uh, nowhere near humans in their ability to use language with, um, with any kind of mastery, right? I think the more specific challenge is, and again, we're not a polling company, right? But the more specific challenge for pollsters is recognizing that there is this fragmentation that is occurring in, in terms of trust in institutions and so forth that will probably skew who's even responding to traditional polling, right? You would be well served to go out and try to get these alternative information streams and assess them in some kind of scale and standardized way. And that's where the kind of effort that we did is, is meaningful, right? So I, I, I think there's probably out of this election, the traditional pollsters are going to be coming back and saying, we, we can't just call people up anymore. We've got to have all AI driven insight into what people are thinking and what they're saying publicly that they might not say to me. Have you received calls from some of the pollsters post-election? Uh, no, we've received, most of our calls have been from folks like you um, saying like, how the heck did you do that, right? Um, we, you know, among our customers, we do have a fair number of folks who are, are in the political sphere, like Politico, for example, which is a um, uh, digital media company that focuses on political reporting, their customers already, right? And I suspect we'll, we'll start to have those conversations, but um, no, I haven't gotten a whole lot of inbound as yet. Most of it has been people saying, how'd you do that, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, is this, t- I guess, just expand on this a little bit. I, I, I think of, and maybe I'm, I'm running down the wrong path on this, but I think of Amazon and Netflix and applying some of this kind of technology to not so much observe what I intend to do, but watch what I do capture that information, and then make accurate predictions about what my purchasing behavior might be next. Is that, is that in the same category of, of what your organization does with the, the sentiment side? Yeah, um, no, it, it's not, right? So, so when you look at what um, Amazon and Netflix are doing, and they're doing really, really well, and is they're essentially looking for patterns of behavior. Right. So the recommendation engines that they put forward and actually Google does the same thing. Right. So when Google provides a search, they're not saying we think this is what you want. It, what they're saying is when most people ask you ask a question similar to what you're asking, this is what they're looking for. Right. right. So there's not to be not to be glib here, but there is a, a game show called Family Feud. Right. And in Family Feud, they had two families and then they had a variety of different categories and they'd ask them questions. The right answer was not the right answer. The right answer was what did most people say was the right answer, Mm -hmm. right? So that's how most of these folks work. And so you you get some interesting kind of corollaries. And I think there's been an occasional time where you'll go on a recommendation engine and you'll put something in uh, and then what comes back is really different, but intriguing, right? So it'll be like, yeah, I don't know, you're, you're looking to buy a flashlight and then one of the recommendations is for an ax. And you're like, yeah, that'd be cool. Well, what they're saying is, okay, you're, I know that you're probably a middle-aged man and you like the outdoors and you're buying a flashlight. Maybe you're going camping. And so we've seen enough people do this that you might be attracted by the ax, right? What we do is very different. What we do is we say, we want the machine to understand language in the same way that humans do, right? To use language in the same way that humans do, right? And when you use the example before of it's hard to teach a robot to walk for all kinds of technical reasons, is it less difficult to teach a machine to understand how to decipher human language and its emotions and intentions? Far more difficult than trying to, far more difficult, right? So let me give you a quick example. The biggest breakthrough that's occurred in traditional approaches to AI and natural language understanding was just released by the OpenAI Institute, right? And that was funded by Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and a few others, and Microsoft just bought the the license to it. And and the model was called GPT-3, okay? GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters which are separate nodes of influence, okay? Now, it does some really interesting things, but it's also very, very unpredictable because it has no understanding of context and causality, right? So it's just looking for pattern matching. And GPT-3 was trained essentially on the entire internet, okay? So it said, find everything in the internet and teach this model about language. When you think about that, it's like, wow, would you want your kid to learn English from the internet? The answer would be no, right? 
because he's going to he's going to learn some really weird and bad things and a lot of things that aren't true. Right. Um, so the approach is and, and it's phenomenally expensive right? to train GPT three. They estimate it costs between five and ten million dollars each time you train it. Right. So that's kind of the logical absurdity of that approach. Right. Which is why we have a hybrid approach embed the knowledge in the way that human beings do, right? And then combine it with the scalability you get with machine learning. What are some of the applications that you're seeing an interest in using your technology for? Well, we've got um, a, a variety of, of uh, core applications, right? So um, within insurance, right? So if you think about insurance, it's a it's a vertical that's run on language, policies, claims, they're all done in language, right? Um, and there's some AI that's um, produced, some interesting AI uh, technology that's coming to bear in the insurance world. For example, take a picture of damage to an automobile and it can give you a pretty good rendering of what the, the um, claim should be, right? Just based on the damage, that's good. You don't have to send somebody on site, fair enough, right? Um, or, you know, give me some risk algorithm that would suggest if you are in a coastal area, how much should we charge you for the likelihood of a catastrophic weather event, right? But when you get into it, the property and casualty business, for example, you know, you're talking about engineering reports that can run to the hundreds of pages of long, uh, uh, long, right? And then multiply that by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of policies, right? So how do you ingest that information? Well, you read it, right? And it's done the old fashioned way. People go through and they review the policy and then they make an assessment around the risk associated with it. What we do is we essentially say, tell us what you're looking for in a conceptual sense right? Give us some basic business rules. And then we'll take that massive information and we'll condense it, summarize it and highlight the key areas that you should look at, right? We're not going to provide you the answer, but we're just going to go through the massive information and look for things that are going to reduce the variability and dramatically increase the speed, right? So that, that's an example in, in, in the insurance space. So it's like a laser. It helps direct towards what's essential and then gives people an opportunity to see what um, they really need to see in order to make the decisions. That's exactly right. Got it. Got it. All right. All right. Understand. What, well, what, what concerns do you have uh, or do you have any concerns about um, these types of technologies um, and the role they would play in not necessarily constructive or, or, or uh, productive uh, delivery? In other words, are, is, are there uses of, of your kinds of technology that give you cause for concern? The, um, yeah, so look, that's a, that's a big topic right now. And in policy circles all around the world around AI. You're seeing it with things like facial recognition, for example, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, some of the algorithms that come out, because again, you're just looking at correlation, right? Um, when you're driving decision-making for anything and you can't explain how it is that you arrived at that decision, you've got a real problem, right? 
And a lot of the AI methodologies have become so complex now that they are that proverbial black box, right? Uh, and that's, that's really dangerous, right? Um, and again, that's one of the things that we really focus on. And the broad term for it is explainable AI, right? You'll also hear sometimes responsible AI. And there is, I, I think, a really clear movement to saying, fine, you can use this technology, but within these bounds. That is, you need to explain how it is that you achieved the outcomes that you're achieving, right? Um, you need to be able to change them in an explicit way, right? So if you're generating outcomes that are, um, for a variety of reasons, considered inappropriate, unfair, biased, et cetera, right? Well, you need to be able to fix them, right? In, in, a, in a reasonably straightforward fashion, right? And again, that's a big part of, of what we think is an advantage of our, our, our hybrid NL. Right. So in other words, if, if you can explain it, um, then you can use it. If you can explain it, then you can use it. Right. And, and I think something like that is it, th that's kind of where the standards are starting to come out. Let me just work back based on what we've discussed so far, because and, and beginning, you know, starting at the, at the very outset with, um, you know, your your accuracy and the predictions of the split between Biden and Trump. Um, if people on the one hand, President Exactly. Thank well you. said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, President-elect. So at, at this point now, you people start to say, well, perhaps AI or these AI tools are simply more effective. Therefore, I am going to defer to them to a greater degree. But then to the second part of our conversation, you say, um, but it's extremely difficult for a machine to really understand and, and, and engage in a way that the human mind does. So there are limitations. And with those limitations, then you're in a situation where if people could become increasingly reliant, but there are limitations, and then you start to basically create certain expectations in the market, whether it's buying behavior or outcomes of elections, you lose that human engagement, which has always been so essential in dealing with the complex challenges of data or complex challenges of understanding a situation. What do you do with that, Walt? How, where does that come back in? In other words, I can see the pendulum swinging a little too fast in one direction. Do you have that same concern? I think that's a valid concern. And I think there is a recognition of of that challenge, right? Um, you know, there's this, people talk about the, at, 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 the, at the really extreme end of the scale, artificial general intelligence, right? Which is when you have truly thinking machines, right? So machines who are, who are able to generate uh, completely new thought patterns that aren't just correlations, right? And, and there's kind of two schools of thought on that, right? The one is, when that happens, head for the hills, right? Because we're in the Terminator and Skynet has become self-aware, right? Um, and then the other is, no, no, that's overstating it. Um, what is fairly clear though, is that uh, it's, we're still probably a good ways away from that, right? Because the causality challenge is the one that's really important, right? Now, I think the immediate challenge, and this should be true for every, everybody, and I just read something quite interesting the other day, is, you have to understand the technology and how it's delivering the capability 
that um, that you're seeking, right? So, you know, if you've got a refrigerator, you don't really have to understand how it works. It just keeps your food cold and that's cool, right? If you're making a hiring decision and it's yeah. based largely on AI, well, yes, you should understand it, both for good and for bad, right? For good to make sure you're getting the right kind of folks and then for bad to make sure that you're not introducing bias or something else pernicious, right? So, you know, somebody, uh, and, and I just saw this the other day, and I can't remember exactly where I saw it, right? But when you think about, when you get a news feed, that's the product of an algorithm, right? And the more you go down a path, the more it starts to tune to you. So pretty soon, it is the world according to Walt, right? Not the world, but the world according to Walt, because I've demonstrated a propensity for behavior. So what they said is, you know, you should have explicit choice where you can go through and say, you know, when my feed, first of all, I would say, be really careful about my feed. Like if you're a Boston Red Sox fan, as I am, fine, you can go to my feed, right? If you're trying to understand what the politics are of Trump supporters, you probably shouldn't be looking in my feed, right? Um, they went even further and they said, you know, explicit algorithms where imagine you've got a, a little drop down box and it says, you know, I want to see. 50% of kind of what I've seen before and 50% that is entirely different, right? So I, I think that's where we need to go, where we need to be a lot more explicit and we need to challenge the way information is served to us. Well, that's a great point. And, you know, it, I guess it speaks to the recent uh, Netflix documentary and social dilemma where they uh, acknowledge that, that, you know, you, we are the reason that the country is so polarized in so many ways. And this is just not, not just the U.S., but in Brexit and, and, and other situations around the world is because you are self-serving. You are creating those kind of channels that you are most inclined to agree with and there feel reinforced and encouraged by. So it, it by virtue of, of these technologies is creating a polarization. So, and, and I guess what I hear you saying, Walt, is, is almost, you know, creating a series of checks and balances, um, you know, like, the, like the, the three aspects of the U.S. government, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the Congress, the executive branch and the judiciary. So you never have one entirely determining factor that's going to kind of decide what the outcome will be. Um, it, I, I mean, would you would there be a technology on t on top of a technology to help monitor that? Has anybody looked at that, or is that being done today? I I think I mean that that was the genesis of the reference that I just made about you know having that kind of toggle ability across algorithms, right? Um, the I, I mean I, to me, it's clearly in the policy arena, right? I I, I think this is one where I mean, if you think about it, for example, at some point policymakers are going to have to decide when self-driving cars are safe enough. Somebody has to make that decision. It's not just kind of like, hey, Google, when you're ready, go for it, right? Because I don't want to be crossing the street when they, when they make that decision. I would far prefer that it's right here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, you know, uh, the, same, the same woman who gave the driver's license test to my daughters three times each, right? Um, so I think that, that that's definitely an, an arena for, for policymakers. I think there will be some standards that kind of emerge, right? Which is with any AI system, you should have a, you know, a structure, the checks and balances structure 
do you know how this decision came, right? Can you change this decision relatively quickly, right? Um, I think those will start to emerge as well. Yeah. Well, we thank you for spending time. Um, fantastically interesting area. Uh, lots more to come. Um, we wish you every success. You bet. And um, happy to continue the conversation. And for anyone in, in your audience who wants to play around with some of our technology, we've got it right there available. Uh, an awful lot of it's free. Expert.ai. That was my conversation with Walt Mayo, CEO of Expert.ai, an up-and-coming player in the world of sentiment analysis AI, and a signal to all of us that AI is on the move and in so many ways surpassing the computational abilities of the human brain. It's cause for reflection, is it not? Are we entering a period of runaway technology so potent that it could replace many of the skills we as humans have come to take for granted? Walt points out that what's easy for humans is not always easy for advanced machines. Programming a robot to walk, for instance, requires thousands of data inputs, feedback loops, and adjustments to manage surge, sway, heave, yaw, roll, pitch. The list of commands goes on and on. I said it was difficult, but not impossible. There's no shortage of YouTube clips with walking robots. In fact, in one recent Google project, a robot taught itself to walk within just a few hours. How? By using AI to tap into a data network that contained the information the robot needed to learn to walk. But what about some of the finer skills primarily associated with humans, like listening? As a higher species, we're blessed with the gift of language. And while these days it feels like people are more interested in talking than listening, we have the ability. The question is, are we making the most of it? Consumed as we are by social media, it leaves the impression that everyone has something to say. If only that were true. Sociologists and psychologists tell us that it's shaping our listening habits and instigating new levels of so-called communication bias. Filters, in other words. We've started to hear what we want to hear and less of what's actually being said. To some degree, that might explain the repeated failings of pollsters. And it certainly speaks to the polarization of people who are selecting to hear whatever reinforces their own beliefs or frame of mind. If technologies like Expert.ai have an embedded ability to detect 80-plus different sentiments and segment them in order to best determine what someone really believes, then what chance do we and our biological brains have in competing with that? There are more questions than answers here, but I suspect if ever there was a time to listen with greater intent, the moment is now. That brings us to the end of this episode of Inside Asia. If you like what you hear, please share this and other episodes with friends and colleagues. If there's a topic you'd like to hear more about, drop us a note or visit us at LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you prefer to get a regular weekly synopsis of our discussions, subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter by signing up at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. As always, we thank you for listening. Mr. Roboto, Mr. Roboto, Mr. Roboto,